Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The U.S.-led G7 group argues that they must support Ukraine as long as it takes. Also, Russia is helping to arm Belarus, and Kiev looks less and less likely to become a NATO member. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark Sloboda, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. President Biden told uh, President Zelensky on Monday that the United States intends to provide Kiev with advanced medium and long range air defense capabilities. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Washington is, quote, in the process of finalizing a package that will also include other items of urgent need, including ammunition for artillery and counter battery radar systems. Mark Sloboda, based on what I hear about the way things are going in um, Ukraine, don't quite seem like this is going to be enough to pull it out for the Ukrainians, but it sure seems like a lot of this is internal political stuff. Mark the Boda. Yeah, I mean, how many times now have we heard of the latest of a Western wonder weapon that is going to change the, the the war? I mean, first it was the javelins, uh, the uh, the anti tank weapons, and then the man pads, and then the N laws, the British. And then, and then uh, we were getting the uh, the switchblade uh, drones. Don't forget the, the switchblade drones, the 155 millimeter M triple seven howitzer. Uh, the latest has been a the HIMARS system, of which the U.S. <laughs> gave the Ukraine a a whole four multiple launch <laughs> rocket systems to replace the. 400 or so that they've already lost um, and says they'll deliver four more. I mean, this is a joke. And this latest one, a handful of air defense systems. The Kiev regime had an air defense system far more extensive than a few piecemeal pieces uh, sent by the U.S., uh, into a conflict zone with people untrained to do it. It'll take months just to train a handful of, of Ukrainian troops in Germany or somewhere else up to use these systems. And and the Kiev regime has already had their air defense system completely destroyed, uh, which is why they need the air defense. But this is a joke. This is another political symbolic uh, act of, you know, the, to believe that these token efforts that are more PR than anything else can keep the Kiev regime fighting when militarily they cannot and will not change. I mean, every new weapons will kill a few more Russians and end up probably resulting in the death of more Ukrainians on both sides of the conflict. But nothing is going to change the course of the war or, you know, the inevitable outcomes. And uh, you know, it makes you have to wonder then why do they keep doing it? And I think you're right that a certain amount of it is got to be simply domestic politics, that the need, the outrage to do something to maintain some type of foreign policy credibility for a politically ailing Biden administration at this point. I think it's politics and finance. Biden says that the U.S. will mobilize 
$200 billion in government and private sector funding. I think the operative term there or the thing that people need to pay attention to is private sector funding. Because what is the private sector funding? What are they investing in? Unless there's a longer, unless there is a longer term uh, corporate vision, uh, pro- uh, 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 profitability for, for, for doing this. Am I, uh, am I putting on my conspiracy theory hat here, Mark Sloboda? No, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there is always in a, an element uh, of this providing, you know, more pork uh, to a bloated military industrial complex. Uh, but there's actually, uh, I recommend reading, you know, uh, again, always in the Western media and the Western uh, military commentariat, most of what is produced is is simply propaganda with with with, you know, that actually disinforms you by reading it. But occasionally a piece sneaks through. And uh, in the past uh, couple of weeks, there has been a piece in RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, a British uh, think tank. Uh, slash military propaganda outfit. But in this case, the return of industrial warfare by Alex Vershinen. And it points out that actually that the U.S. is geared up military industrial complex wise towards bloated high ticket items that are, you know, part of of domestic political spending uh, and that that uh, also uh, the other thing they're geared up for is fighting counterinsurgency wars around the world. And they simply lack the industrial capacity to uh, fight a large scale war against a peer competitor like Russia. They do not have the industrial capacity to arm Ukraine that it could defeat. And they basically have to say that there's no chance of it happening. So um, all this money shoveling uh, into the current U.S. military industrial complex is not going to change anything except, you know, provide a, a, a healthy uh, salary and bonus for uh, the, all of the good people at Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and so on, many of whom are just a revolving door between the Pentagon and the high military ranks and and this complex. You know, I do want to ask you about this, Mark. You know, Petro Poroshenko really came out and admitted the obvious, and that was, hey, the Minsk agreement was just a, you know, the old diplomat, di- dipl- way of diplomacy of saying nice doggy until you can find a rock, right? We're just <laughs> going to hold them off and, for, and rebuild our military. To me, that... I mean, if it wasn't already dead, which probably was, but that kills any possibility of a diplomatic resolution to this thing before the before the Russians has have have um, reached their goals, because you're telling them last time we just held you off until we could get what we wanted. You would have to assume that they're doing that again. The only problem is they don't have all that long because the, the, I'm going to say the EU, the NATO doesn't have all that long because uh, they're kind of running out of food and energy. But at any rate, your thoughts, Mark. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely zero reason to trust anything that comes out of Kiev or Washington from Russia's perspective. I mean, we're talking not just the Minsk One and the Minsk Two Accords, which both Poroshenko and Merkel, by the way, have admitted were just meant to buy time to rebuild the uh, Ukrainian military, um, which 
has now been destroyed and they have to <laughs> rebuild it again in the middle of a conflict um and uh, which is you know impossible um and uh, and um you know but there's even more i mean there is the february 21st agreement uh that was supposed to settle the maidan uh which uh the west just walked all over and drove allowed uh um the uh previous uh, Ukrainian president to be driven uh, from the country and and the, uh, the to then a leading party to be uh, lustrated and pogromed out of existence. Um, there is a whole host of um, uh, important Cold War era uh, nu- nuclear security architecture treaties uh, from the anti-ballistic missile treaty to the short intermediate range nuclear forces treaty to the open skies treaty and so on that the u.s has either unilaterally pulled out of or just walked all over and ignored there is zero reason for the kremlin to trust now that uh, that negotiation uh uh is a way from settling this except from a position of such clear dominance and strength that the other side has no opportunity uh to to wiggle their way out of that conflict and dmitry medvedev uh the former uh, russian president he's now uh the chair of of the russian national security council um he pointed out that you know all of this you know, talk about the uh, the Kiev regime being given EU candidate status and de facto membership in NATO and will uh, invest in, in the Kiev regime in a new Marshall plan and will rebuild it, will rebuild their military. You're assuming that in a couple years time, there still will be a Kiev regime or a Ukraine as it exists today to do this in. And he's basically saying there won't be. There are two stories I'd like for you to speak to quickly. One is uh, a Russian strike hit a crowded shopping mall in central Ukraine, President Zelensky said earlier today on Telegram. That makes that sounds eer- eerily reminiscent of the story that the Russian missile that uh, that struck the train station that we w- later found out uh, was probably shot e- erroneously by the Ukrainians. And the other one is Russia defaults on foreign debt for first time since 1918. Okay, so um, the first one, this strike at a shopping mall, I mean, uh, supposedly there was a thousand civilians inside and only a a couple were killed and injured. I don't know if you've seen a, you know, building that has been calibrated by a Russian cruise missile strike, but the building (laughs) is is completely destroyed, right? Uh, What appears to be that actually happened in this situation is that the Russians were hitting, targeting a military site, and the Kiev regime fired off some of their last remaining air defense systems, and one of those missiles is one basically nicked this building uh and we've seen this previously before and and there's no question that it has happened before and this looks what like what happened again and even a couple peeing people dying and being injured civilians is of course a tragedy but you know it happens in war uh and it neither russia is at fault or in this the kiev regime you know that's a legitimate form of defense uh, basically stuff just happens as towards this force this fake force to default where 
Russian money has been seized. You know, um, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, has been uh, of Russian money in, in Western banks has been seized. And Russia is still easily able to make the payments on its small amount of debt that it that it maintains basically for credit you know, purposes that it, you know, if for future credit purposes, um, the West, particularly the U.S., has weaponized their control of the global financial system to physically prevent Russia from from making the transactions possible um, uh, in dollars and euros. Russia provided it in rubles, actually, uh, which is, by the way, thanks to uh, U.S. Bl- uh, backfiring uh, sanctions efforts, been the best performing currency in the world for the last several months, uh, better than it was at the time of the intervention. Uh, but it's not going to have any effect because Russia's already cut off from from largely Western investors. Uh, you know, because of existing uh, Western sanctions. So uh, the effect on ratings agencies in the West doesn't make any difference. And, you know, the countries that Russia has turned to for its ever increasing trade with China, India, Asia, the Middle East, they don't care. (laughs) Uh, So um, this is this is actually what it points to, if anything, is a black hit on the reputation of the Western constructed global financial system. And increasingly, you're going to start to see other countries realize now how it can be used against them and at least keep, uh, you know, uh, alternatives like that BRICS is working on right now as as an alternative. You, they will the, the Western system will continue to exist, but it will no longer have the hegemonic dominance that it once did. Mark, we got one minute. Uh, can you update us on the Lithu- Lithuania blockade? Yeah. Um, so right now, the EU Commission and Lithuania are basically fighting amongst themselves. The EU Commission said, well, we actually don't want to go down this road. Who told you to do this? The Americans. And they want to draft a law to to uh, to allow Russian transit across Lithuania from one part of Russia to the other. Uh, and Lithuania is threatening to veto this action so that they can continue, even as they try to say that they're only doing it because of the sanctions declared by the EU Commission. It's a rather interesting uh, internal fight going on uh, between uh, Lithuanian government, uh, clearly acting under US and British uh, um, coaxing or, or pressure, and the EU Commission at this point. And um, uh, I personally, you know, I, I am looking forward to Russia's uh, response uh, if Lithuania continues with this uh, uh, attempt to blockade um, Kaliningrad. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. In a recent interview, Jeremy Corbyn revealed that he was attacked by UK, US and Israel-linked political media and military intelligence assets during his run for prime minister. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Steve Poikinen, who is the national organizer for Action for Assange. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much, gentlemen. 
And uh, tell us uh, again, uh, you, you have a show on Rockfin? I do. I have two. I am a co-host of the AM Wake Up with Pasta Jardula, and I host Slow News Day with Glory Jones. You can find both of them on Rockfin. Rockfin, that's R-O-K-F-I-N, rockfin.com. I also have a show on there, just plain old Garland Nixon show. All right. The military sent Jeremy Corbyn a warning during his bid to become prime minister, and intelligence services deliberately undermined him, the former leader, leader the former labor leader, said in an interview with Declassified U. Okay. A week after Mr. Corbyn was elected labor leader in 2015, the Sunday Times ran a story quoting, quote, a senior serving general who said the military would take direct action if he was elected. Mr. Corbyn said, I thought it was a sort of sort of shot across the bows, a warning to me. I think he was right. Steve Poikinen. The the character assassination that Jeremy Corbyn and Chris Williams uh, suffered over the last six, seven years, um, but by virtue of speaking out on the right side of history and on behalf of and for the Palestinians, uh, is disgusting. (laughs) I don't really have uh, a better way to put it. It is one of the wildest, directly open, concerted efforts to target and get rid of a political opponent via the press uh, that I've seen for an elected official, period, uh, fully aware of the fact that they tried to do the same thing to Bernie Sanders in, in 2020. It's also interesting that Mike Pompeo is mentioned in this article. He's on record as having said it's possible, you should know, we won't wait for him to do those things to begin to push back. So not only is this MI6 Uh, This is also the United States CIA operating in concert. Yeah, for the sole purpose of getting rid of or preventing the election of uh, a left-leaning populist political leader who, by all accounts, was quite popular within his own country. And doing it in one of the most underhanded and nefarious ways by trying to weaponize anti-Semitism against people who simply said what the state of Israel is doing to the Palestinians is unequivocally criminal. You know, Steve, I tell you what, this puts lie to Joe Biden's argument. This is democracies. This is our group of democracies versus authoritarian regimes. How can you look at a government and say the media The political apparatus, the intelligence apparatus, the military apparatus, and the gigantic uh, 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 world-engulfing company, empire, that supports this country, they all say, nah, that guy right there, he can't be president. How can you do that and then argue that it's a democracy? It is clear. And I don't I, I mean, I'm not British, but the British people need to wake up and say we're fooling ourselves to believe that we live in a democracy. This is still some sort of a feudal monarchy slash empire. At any rate, your thoughts. I was going to say they just gave a knighthood to Tony Blair. Of course. Tony Blair. Yeah. You know, I, the, there's. It, this is the the Canadian prime minister has to swear an oath to the Queen of England. The, yes, there's very nice things about a parliamentary system, 
for sure. But at the end of the day, that's that's not what any of these governments are operating under, certainly not in the Five Eyes countries, certainly not when you have coordination at the level of intelligence chief to intelligence chief to target not only your media, but to coordinate efforts throughout the intelligence community to target a political figure based on the what defense of a beleaguered people but i mean that's just an excuse if they couldn't have got them with the fake anti-semitism they would have tried fake other things that i'm sure they have throughout the years it's just it's a it's and it's an intelligence operation being ran at the nation state level across nation states that's that's certainly no form of governance and it's definitely not the ones that are advertised why do you think these these stories are are coming out now? Does timing have anything to do with this? Well, they they know how unpopular Kier Starmer is. They know how unpopular Boris Johnson is. So if they can make it look like there's a Corbyn friendly labor leader arising that they can, you know, attach a couple of puppet strings to and use as their next Keir Starmer or their next Boris Johnson. That seems like one likely avenue. Controlled release of information is, is I don't know, it's been seven years. That's, you know, I mean, basically beyond any general statute of limitations pre-Patriot Act. <laughs> you, you can let people know they were right after the fact, especially if you're calling them a conspiracy theorist for saying anything about Ukraine. You know, there's a consistency here also, external versus internal, internal for the for the, the empire and, the, and, its, and its associated colonial powers and vassals. And that is, if you look around the, the country, the world, any country that tries to move towards either socialism or any level of independence outside of the neoliberal sphere, they use these same tools. The media is attacking Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, you know, Ortega, whoever, right? They use the same intelligence tools to make it look like they're up to no good the military tools to invade them if they well if, if they're if they think they can get away with doing that so what we're seeing to me here is the chickens coming home to roost where all of these things that are used on the external to attack people on the inside they looked at a Corbin and they looked at a Bernie Sanders it was the exact same thing Bernie has not come forward and admitted it but I guarantee you Bernie knows the same thing your thoughts Steve Oh, he does. But but Bernie Sanders himself said that he doesn't want to end up being, uh, you know, the Ralph Nader uh, of this era. He's more concerned about his legacy than he is about the truth. So he'll play the game and he'll go away gracefully um, <laughs> in terms of what's happened to to Corbin, though, and the way that this is weaponized. I it, they don't have it. They're never accountable. Garland. There's no accountability. They're allowed to use the same playbook because no one ever holds them to task. And when they are held to task, they're dismissed as the, the thing they were originally charged with. Well, of course, this anti-Semite is over here saying that we set him up. I mean, but, you know, you guys read for yourself for the last five years what uh, a reckless maniac he is. They were calling Corbin unhinged at every possible opportunity. He was a maniac. He was a bloodthirsty commie. He was this, he was that. And also, he, he you know, hates the Jews, of course, because it, it, every 
uh, you know, peace activist for 50 years is also a hardened anti-Semite. I don't really know how the logic works there, <laughs> but it works because make the lie big, repeat it often enough, and, and the the people will believe it. And in this uh, consortium news piece, they also talk about the complicity of the media, and they tie the complicity of the media in this case to their failure to protect Julian Assange. Well, yeah, it, it, case in point in the article, they rightfully go after The Guardian, it, which everyone should at every possible opportunity. I don't know if you can digitally wrap a fish, but that's effectively what it's good for. I, that, you know, maybe metaphorically, we could probably do that. But they cite the, uh, they cite the, the notorious and still yet unretracted Luke Harding fantasy about Paul Manafort meeting Julian Assange in the embassy. Luke Harding, in his craven madness, invented an entire wardrobe for Paul Manafort, described his sandy-colored chinos. That's what The Guardian is paying for, for column space for, is... I don't know, uh, a work of fiction that incorporates the Land's End Summer Catalog. That's not journalism. (laughs) I don't... Matt Kennard, uh, who's a wonderful human being, um, and Mark Curtis uh, have suggested that or have uh, ways that you can deadlink The Guardian up on their website so that you will never be exposed to The Guardian's nonsense. I I would... (laughs) encourage people to check that out. You know, another thing when you look at, we're talking about, uh, we're looking at Boris Johnson right now, who's skating on thin ice to say the least. Keir Starmer, who's not, Starmer, who's not, uh, 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 you know, popular by any stretch of the imagination. I think the, they're going to be, have a real jam in the UK amongst other places, same as us, but I will just talk about the UK, wherein the people are getting furious because of the cost of living. They're kind of losing this, yay, let's, you know, uh, uh, wear, let's wave our blue and yellow flag kind of thing. That's going to like, we're hungry. And they have nowhere to go because they're going to say, great, we're done with the Tories. Oh boy, Keir Starmer and the labor leaders, it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. And that's going to to me, facilitate some kind of, I mean, I hate to go this far, but some kind of a societal breakdown. What happens when the people realize there ain't no way to get heat next, food and heat next winter, that everything they got's heading for Ukraine? It's not going to be great. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to, to I, I hate making predictions like this because you're absolutely right. The last number I saw that the UK government had given Ukraine was approaching $20 billion, which is a drop in the bucket compared to what the U.S. has and what the U.S. has promised. But it's a, a, a lot if for the UK to solely be responsible for. You're, when you sell out the entire country, and they they finally get in the same place to yell at the same direction. They're going to figure out that they're ultimately all yelling at the same people and that it's all of those people, not one particular party, that is the problem. Uh, that's what they don't want. So they're going to have to come up with some super wedge issue. They're going to have to come up with some sort uh, of, uh, you know, distraction 
or some sort of diversion when it comes to their next election. And then they're going to have to put in some sort of, you know, banal puppet or compromise candidate, because the only people that are really left to run are like Liz Truss and Nigel Farage again. That's not going to work out. And 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 here's the thing, you know, it's kind of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's hard to distract people when they're cold and hungry. People get real mad when they're cold and hungry. We're talking with the one and only Steve Poikin and friend of the show. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. will hold their first trade talks with Taiwan as U.S.-China tensions grow. Also, the U.S. steps up military construction in the Pacific region, seemingly in preparation for war with China. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, and researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with this. Last Friday, a U.S. Navy Poseidon P-8A intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance aircraft flew through the Taiwan Strait. This seemingly routine event was anything but. Indeed, it appears to have been the latest U.S. gambit in its dispute with China over the legal regime governing such passages, and thus their conflicting views of the relevant international order. Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, obviously, this is highly provocative and quite dangerous, but not surprising. Uh, You know that as we speak, the so-called Group of Seven, the leading capitalist nations led by the United States, including the Western European states plus Japan, are meeting in the Bavarian Alps. And high on the agenda is not only Ukraine, but how to confront China in that regard, a special guest is the Prime Minister of India, speaking of Prime Minister Modi, because India's relations with China, or shall we say complex and complicated, despite their mutual membership in the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And we know that India is also part of the so-called Quad, that is to say India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. There, there are so many There's a proliferation of these uh, U.S. front organizations right now. Uh, Another one has the the phrase Blue Pacific in it, which I won't uh, bore your listeners by talking about. But it's a reflection of this growing hysteria about the People's Republic of China, the possibility, if not probability, that it is in the passing lane and will leave the imperialist nations sprawling in the dust. To that extent, you should also look at the current issue of foreign affairs published by the Council on Foreign Relations on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, a State Department front, if you like. And Evo Dolder, who is a longtime U.S. diplomat, has a piece where he suggests that the Group of Seven needs to be expanded. Interestingly enough, in his call for backup, fundamentally to confront the People's Republic of China, because I guess he feels that the Group of Seven does not have enough muscle 
and metal to confront Beijing, uh, he suggests that the new members should include Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, the European Union, beyond France and Germany, and, of course, NATO. And keep in mind that when NATO meets in a few days, high on the agenda in that Spain meeting will also be the People's Republic of China. Now, some of your listeners may be scratching their heads and say, wait a minute, I thought it was the North Atlantic Treaty Organization focused on Russia, focused previously on the Soviet Union. Well, I think listeners need to get up to speed that uh, this confrontation with Russia uh, that we are enduring today is really only chapter one. Uh, Chapter two involves going after the big burrito, the big enchilada, speaking of the People's Republic of China. However, the North Atlantic countries also know that they have a real dilemma because Taiwan, the rebel province off the southern coast of China, only 65 miles from Japanese islands in the Japanese archipelago, a nation of 23 million, also happens to contain a Taiwan semiconductor which has a de facto monopoly control of computer chips, believe it or not. And that's why you have this scurrying in Congress to try to build a computer chip facilities in the United States. Because since China has continued to insist that Taiwan is part of the People's Republic of China, if somehow there's an accommodation between Taiwan and Beijing, Taiwan would have then, in its powerful economy, the major chip manufacturer on planet Earth, which would then be even more muscle for the People's Republic of China, which is one of the reasons why Washington has to keep up this drumbeat of hysteria about Taiwan to keep Taiwanese off balance, to prevent any sort of accommodation by Taiwan with Beijing, and also to keep and continually confront the People's Republic of China itself. So when I look at this Taiwan Strait and the United States, the Poseidon P-8A surveillance aircraft flying through the strait, the United States says that this is an international waterway. China says, no, it's our sovereign territory. The United States says you're wrong, but the United States is not a signatory to the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Seas. So the United States doesn't even really have any legal basis upon which to make its argument. But the United States continues to engage in this incredibly provocative behavior. And I'm trying to figure out what's the win for the United States if, for example, and heaven forbid, the United, the uh, China shot the plane down. I mean, this is to me analogous to playing chicken on the freeway, and it works out fine till you get run over by a truck. Well, I think from the point of view of the Hawks in Washington, as they survey the landscape, they feel that they have a military advantage over Beijing. That's their perception, even though, as we said on these airwaves more than once. In 19 tabletop exercises involving confrontations between the Chinese and U.S. military, the Chinese uh, prevail 19 times. 
can I interrupt and give and give an analogy? The United States is the drunk in the bar fight. I have yet, and I've been in a few bars, to see a drunk win a bar fight. <laughs> and I don't think that that the pattern will change anytime soon. But keep in mind as well is that if you flip the script, you'll be able to understand the folly of U.S. positions. Supposedly, I mean, suppose if Chinese aircraft were buzzing Honolulu, buzzing Los Angeles, buzzing heaven for Finn, Washington, D.C., uh, you can only imagine the outrage that would ensue in this particular country. But once again, the mantra of the United States is that consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. However, Washington may come to rue the day it adopted that slogan, and it may have that slogan, I'm afraid to say, uh, planted or imprinted on its epitaph. We also see that the uh, the U.S. government is doing some uh, building up some more air bases on some on, on on some islands in the Pacific. Apparently, they're now concerned that the the island of Guam, that their air base that there could be destroyed uh, by uh, uh, Chinese missiles. Obviously, they are preparing for what would be an economically suicidal. Um, if not, if not worse, but at minimum, economic suicide by going to war with China at a time, may, may, I might add, where there's an economic suicidal suite of sanctions going on with um, Russia over Ukraine. Our economy is collapsing and they seem to be ignoring the current problems, looking to maybe go out in the world and drum up some new ones. Well. I'm glad you mentioned the Pacific. If you look at the New York Times website as we speak, you'll find an interesting op-ed by the journalist from the Solomon Islands known as Dorothy Wickham. And she's trying to explain to the typically naive U.S. readers as to why the Solomon Islands has decided to have closer relations with Beijing. She mentions, of course, that the Peace Corps which is actually a pittance when it comes to foreign assistance, has pulled out of the Solomon Islands, that Australia, only a population of less than 30 million, New Zealand, less than 6 million, don't have the wherewithal that the People's Republic of China does. And, of course, the People's Republic of China has this Belt and Road Initiative that is pouring a trillion dollars or more into places like the Solomon Islands, you might have seen the reaction at the G7 meeting in the Bavarian Alps, where they come up with a, 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 a kitty of $600 billion, which barely competes with Beijing's massive amount that it is spending. But once again, it shows the competitive pressure that the North Atlantic countries are under. But having said that, I think that this confrontation with China will introduce rifts into the North Atlantic Alliance. It's no secret that the German economy, which has been heavily dependent upon Russian energy, is even more dependent upon Chinese markets. We also know that with the recent elections in France and the surge into influence of left-wing parties, that there will be increasing pressure upon France to settle this Ukraine conflagration. And keep in mind that it was France under Charles de Gaulle, their post-World War II leader, 
which years before Washington decided to recognize reality and recognize the People's Republic of China, France had recognized the People's Republic of China. And keep in mind as well that Jacques Chirac, Mr. Macron's predecessor, had traveled to China dozens of times, dozens of times, uh, before he was uh, pushed out of office. And so do not be surprised if France begins to peel away from the United States with regard to this confrontation, not only with Russia, but with China. And that uh, actually portends, I'm afraid to say, given the illogic in Washington, uh, even more adventurism, uh, even more belligerence on the part of the hawks in Washington, believe it or not. And Dorothy Wickham, in her piece, she really makes it very simple. She says the Solomon Islands is small and, and remote, but and, and that basically the West has ignored them. And she says, uh, you've got to show up. If you really want to have influence, you have to show up. And the United States has not showed up. And that China is showing up. Uh, I mean, that math is pretty simple to do. We've got about a minute left. Well, of course, if the Solomon Islands uh, wanted to absorb some of the military material from the Pentagon, uh, then Washington and the Solomon Islands could do business. But what, of course, they're looking for is hospitals, uh, schools. They're looking for a stadium, which China is in the process of building. And they're looking for scholarships uh, for their youth. They're looking for job training uh, for their youth and skills such as carpentry and electricians. The United States can hardly provide that for its own population. <laughs> so how is it going to provide it? for this nation thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, not only from San Francisco, but from Honolulu. But we can send $70 billion to the Ukraine, though. Well, of course, in, in <laughs> outmoded military material that probably will be destroyed on the ground by Russian bombers before it gets into the hands of the Ukrainian military. Well, I can say this. If they need some extra um, bio-research labs, we can sure help them out there. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, researcher. You can, wherever books are, find, uh, are found online, go there, and you can find lots of stuff from Dr. Horn. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Turkey's NATO roadblock to Finland and Sweden will be a major topic at this week's NATO meeting. Also, NATO will discuss its massive eastward expansion all the way to the Pacific to threaten China. Joining us now to discuss this and more, Scott Ritter, former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq, writer and author. Scott, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Well, thanks for having me. In Scott's latest article, which you can find, it's called The Fantasy of Fanaticism in Consortium News. Scott writes, in a stunning admission, admission Oleksandr Daniliuk, a former senior advisor to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and Intelligence Services, noted that the optimism that existed in Ukraine following Russia's decision to terminate phase one of the special military operation, a major military feint toward Kiev, 
and begin phase two, the liberation of the Donbass, was no longer warranted. Quote, the strategies and tactics of the Russians are completely different right now, Danyuk noted. They are being much more successful. They have more resources than us, and they are not in a rush. There is a much less space for optimism right now. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter? Well, I mean, the, the passage pretty much speaks for itself. The, um, the you know, reality sometimes takes a little bit of time to become apparent. Uh, people can fool themselves, uh, especially early on in a very complicated, uh, you know, uh, event. Um, but sooner or later, you know, you're going to have to pay the bill. And uh, when it comes to war, paying the bill means you, you need to be beating the bad guys, uh, you know, or else the bad guys are beating you. And if you're the Ukrainians, um, the bad guys are the Russians. And you can sit there and tell the world how wonderful you are, how great you've been doing, um, how, how, how badly you've been whipping the Russians. But um, eventually people are going to look at the map and go, that's, that's not what we're seeing. It's like, uh, you know, talking big at the halftime show, coming back on the field and looking at the scoreboard, and it says 46 to nothing. Um, you know, it, no matter what you do, what you say, that's reality. And uh, that's what's happening right now in Ukraine. The, uh, you know, reality has come home to roost. The, uh, you know, the propaganda has been blown away by hard truth. And um, even even the West, even the, the, the media uh, here in the United States and uh, in, in Europe is having a hard time sustaining. They they have to they're starting to caveat everything. Um, they're starting to print, you know, the you know, the, the kind of uh, insightful interviews with Ukrainian officials that um, they they would have never printed before because it was, you know, against the the narrative they were trying to. Um, you know, promote, you know, uh, things such as um, the M7, the M777 howitzers. Uh, if you remember when when they first talked about sending them over there, I said, they break, <laughs> they break. Um, that's all they do is they break. They're horrible. We hate them because they break. Now you have the head of the Ukrainian artillery service saying, you know, when we we, we, we send them into battle, uh, they break. <laughs> we we, we got to pull them out right after we fire them because they all break. Uh, that's just the statement of fact. That's reality. So, you know, people can sit there and say, oh, the U.S. howitzers have helped turn the tide. They're going to change the way this is being fought. The Ukrainians are going to win. They're going to win. The reality is the howitzers haven't changed anything when, you know, many of them have been destroyed before they got to the front lines. And when they're used, those that aren't destroyed by counterfire break and have to be pulled off the line to be maintained. That this is just reality. Garland, I, I knew I never should have shut down my uh, Howitzer customer field service operation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Golly, I shut it down a week too soon. Uh, Scott, you you write, uh, and this is uh, to 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 really summarize what you what you're saying that uh, Danayuk's conclusions were not derived from some esoteric analysis, but rather mil- basic military math. Elaborate a little bit more on that, because that's been a a constant theme of yours since this whole thing started is you just have to do the math. And when you do the math, you you, you can't argue with it. And another thing to that point, what I think is to that point, is we're now hearing stories that Russia is sending missiles into Kiev and, and into Kharkiv. And so it seems as though 
that the Ukrainians, through the United States prompting and, and NATO support, has allowed this thing to drag on so long that now it seems as though Russia has almost reached a point of no return. Well, I think Russia's reached a point of no return. There will be no negotiated uh, settlement. <clears throat> this thing is, um, is is going on to the to the bitter end. Uh, I mean, Russia's made this point from day one that um, the special military operation will continue until all objectives are achieved. Um, since then, we've received some indication of uh, you know what what for instance denazification means. We now know that it means that. Um, there will be a constitutional amendment to the Ukrainian constitution that outlaws these far right wing parties, uh, bans mention of Stepan Bandera, and uh, boots out of power anybody who uh, who is affiliated with. Denazification means <laughs> no more Nazis. Um, demilitarization means all this equipment that the West is sending will either be destroyed or turned over to Russia. Um, there won't none of it will be allowed to be retained by Ukraine. So we're we're getting closure on that. We're also uh, being told that, you know, that now that the Ukrainians have accepted so many uh, weapons and have used them irresponsibly to shell civilian uh, targets in uh, the Donetsk uh, Republic, um, the special military operation will no longer be limited to simply liberating the Donbass. Uh, the suggestion is that all Russian cities in Ukraine, that means Kharkov, Dnepropetrovsk, Odessa, um, will be under Russian control, uh, that Russia can never again trust Ukraine to responsibly uh, govern over a Russian population. And we could go on and on and on. The bottom line is <laughs> this thing will end when Russia wants it to end and not a minute sooner. You know, there's a discussion, and you covered it in your article. Once again, you can find in Consortium News, The Fantasy of Fanaticism by Scott uh, Ritter. And you talked about how basically now even Jen Stoltenberg, uh, hardliners like him and various people in NATO are starting to say, well, you know, we maybe perhaps we need to um, we need to come up with a deal here. I think the bottom line is that when this is, the, the, to me, the, there's there's two questions when this is done. What, if anything, will be left of Ukraine? And if they continue at this point with the infighting, we see Lithuania now in a fight with the EU, kind of ironically saying, well, the reason we're blockading Kaliningrad is because of the EU. And now the EU saying, we don't want you to blockade Lenin, Lenin, uh, Kaliningrad. And they're saying, we'll fight the EU over this, it's not making any sense. What the heck is going to be left of NATO when this is all said and done, Scott Ritter? Well, I think, you know, it, it, when you go back, for instance, and look at the fall of the Roman Empire, um, there's going to be a lot of people, you know, who study this, who, you know, they'll say, this is when I think the Roman Empire started to fall. No, this is when. This is when. Um, when people come back and, and study the fall of NATO, because NATO is falling. Uh, there won't be a NATO in 30 years. I could pretty much, I'd bet money on that. Um, you know, they're going to point to this right here, Ukraine. Uh, this is when NATO fell. Uh, because it is, uh, and NATO, start, I mean, the president of Turkey came out and just said it. We're not sanctioning Russia because NATO started this. NATO started this. I mean, there's just widespread recognition that NATO made this Ukrainian crisis happen. Uh, NATO could have avoided this, but they didn't. They opted in because this is what they wanted. They believed that the economy 
the economic sanctions were going to collapse the Russians. They believed that the Russian army wasn't up to the task. They were wrong across the board. And, um, you know, one of the, the key signs of a failing empire is uh, the poor decisions made by its uh, its leadership. And um, we, we see NATO just making one bad decision after the next, uh, including, you know, their talk today. I mean, I, I had to laugh. 300,000 ready troops with whose money? <laughs> I, I mean, I just I just uh, who's paying for this? The German economy? No, they have. They're they're about to go into freeze mode. They have to start firing up the coal plants. Uh, the French economy? Now it's it shutting down. Michelin shutting down. Uh, which European economy is going to pay to go from forty thousand ready troops, and they're not ready, by the way, to three hundred thousand ready troops, and they'll never be ready, by the way. I mean, this is a joke. This is NATO fooling itself. I call this self-licking ice cream cone for a reason because it exists only to please itself. So we've got this NATO meeting, and uh, what are we to look for? What kind of signals beyond the rhetoric are you going to be paying attention to to, to indicate uh, where this whole thing is headed? Well, I mean, this is purely about perception. This is, this is one of the reasons why NATO's collapsing is it literally doesn't have a viable reason to exist. So they've created one. Now it's about Russia. Russia is the existential threat. It's the number one threat. It's that which will motivate NATO to expand and survive, et cetera. Well, you know, the, the problem is nobody in Europe agrees with this. I mean, they, they, they're all a little bitter over Russia, but I think that there's, you see the divisions in NATO where Turkey's saying, no, we're, we're, we're not buying into this uh, language. Um, you know, NATO thought they were going to have two new members. No, they're not going to have two new members this time. Uh, Bulgaria's got issues. You know, the Czech Republic's got issues. Croatia's got issues. They all have issues. Um, this is about perception management, but it's not about reality. Uh, what we're seeing in NATO is literally one of the greatest, uh, you know, works of fiction being written. Um, it's 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 not about the truth. These three hundred thousand troops, where are they coming from? Who's paying for them? Where are they going to be based? How sustainable is this when your economy is collapsing? Um, and so I, I, I just see NATO and the G7. I mean, talk about two totally irrelevant organizations. And the EU, there's a third irrelevant organization we can throw in the European Commission. These are all fantasy-based um, organizations right now. They're not dealing with reality because the reality is the collapse of Europe around their ears. I mean, this is what's going on. And yet they all are pretending that somehow, you know, they're still players. I don't know if you saw the, the comedy routine, you know, take off our jackets, uh, we'll take off our shirts, we'll ride a horse like Vladimir Putin. We got to be tougher than Putin, you know, the leaders of the G7. I mean, really, this is this is what we've been reduced. I mean, I expected it, you know, Boris Johnson there. So, of course, it's a joke. But it, it's this is ridiculous. This is embarrassing. If you're an American citizen or a citizen of Europe, you should be ashamed of your leadership right now because it's literally a joke. Let me ask you about Turkey, because it appears to me Turkey's kind of getting off the bandwagon. They're talking about getting involved in BRICS. They're talking about getting involved in. Uh, it's like Turkey's looking at this thing saying, eh, I think I see who's going to be the winner and I'm going to shade myself in that direction. We've got about two minutes. Well, it's not just who's going to be the winner. How has Turkey been treated by Europe and the NATO allies? They've been sanctioned. They've been sanctioned. They've been sanctioned. 
why in God's name would Turkey continue to participate in a system that sanctions it? One of the reasons why they get sanctioned because of the almighty dollar. Well, now look at the BRICS. The BRICS is coming together saying, we're going to come up with an alternative a basket of currencies that will serve as the a global currency reserve. You no longer have to be held hostage to the dollar and the euro. You don't have to worry about your money being stolen by the West. Um, why wouldn't Turkey buy into that? I, and I, I think you're going to see others uh, looking at that as well. Uh, you know, the West stands for nothing. There is no integrity in the West anymore. And uh, Turkey would be wise to, uh, to, to, you know, to, 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 to head over to the, 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 the people who, you know, play by the law, not a rules-based world order, but a law-based world order. America lost, lost all credibility when they stole $650 billion of Russia's sovereign wealth fund. I mean, it basically it says that the dollar is not the world's, um, you know, reserve currency, because if you, if you use the dollar, we're going to steal the dollar. Well, you know, Turkey could always return to the hunter-gatherer uh, 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 time period with, uh, with Poland and, and go gather wood. But we will see what happens. We've been talking with Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. European allies and a coalition of real politic domestic groups are pushing President Biden to go against pro-war Zionist forces and return to the Iran nuclear deal. Also, we discuss the difficulties in forming a ruling coalition in the Iraqi parliament. Joining us to now, now to discuss this, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. The recent resignation of the Sadrus Bloc's parliamentarians from the Iraqi parliament at the order of their political leader, Shia leader, Maqtada al-Sadr, took everybody by surprise. Probably not Laith Maru. <laughs> Laith, what's happening? They've been, this thing's been going on for months and months. What are the problems in, in Iraq in forming a government? Uh, well, the, the situation in Iraq hasn't changed, obviously, with this uh, resignation of al-Sadr's uh, uh, bloc. But what it also uh, opens up right now, the space for a, a government of a majority, because and anybody who uh, reached second place in the elections where uh, al-Sadr's bloc won will get the seat automatically. And that is most probably all the resistance uh, access uh, affiliated parties. And so we will see this. In the next few months, a government is formed. That is, if the Americans allow it, if there is no uh, destabilization of the country that happens uh, to make sure that the government is not formed, because the, the United States definitely is not going to be happy with whatever government uh, comes to shape. In fact, elaborate on that, because that was exactly my next question, is how much power does Muqtada al-Sadr have? And... Where is the United States in the behind-the-scenes machinations of all of this? Because I remember during the 
invasion of Iraq, all we heard about was Muqtada al-Sadr. He was this incredible force that the United States was fearing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where does he stand now in terms of the power vacuum in the country? Well, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr has been kind of an enigma in terms of uh, where he stands politically. But what we know is that he has a, a lot of support within the uh, Shia community in the south of Iraq uh, and around the holy sites and in, in the poor parts of Baghdad. So uh, we could say it's the working class Shia that uh, usually support uh, Muqtada Sadr. So he has a, a good following uh, that, that uh, you know, will listen to any of his, uh, you know, directions. Now... Uh, you know, many people were worried because he would, you know, he would uh, talk about interference of the Saudis and the Americans and also interference about the, of the Iranians in Iraq. And they couldn't figure out where does he stand in this uh, war of axes in the region. Um, but uh, it seems like right now he decided that he's going to withdraw from this and, uh, you know, not be part of any fight over the government in Iraq. And so uh, there seems to me, to be quite frank, right now Iraq seems to be in a bad place. We've got Turkey and, you know, involved in um, in, in um, military activities in, 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 uh, in the north and, you know, the U.S. still kind of controlling that through the Kurds. And you've got the inability to form a government, although I do recall seeing some things where Iraq had had um, signed some major deals with China, building a lot of schools, etc. Doesn't that also mean that the U.S. empire will be upset and maybe try to meddle more to keep uh, China and or Russia from becoming, you know, strong in Iraq? Yeah, and, and look, uh, at the same time as we saw this uh, resignation of Muqtada Salah and his, and his party members, uh, this, this is putting the current prime minister of Iraq in a very uh, unstable situation because it's very unlikely that he will be renewed as a prime minister. So uh, in those last moments uh, before a new government is formed in Iraq and this prime minister has changed, uh, he is shuttling between uh, Saudi and Iran. Today he was in Iran, yesterday he was in Saudi. And uh, the foreign affairs minister of Iran announced that uh, these negotiations that uh, the, the Iraqis have been helping with uh, are, are coming to a fruition. There will be uh, meetings also between these uh, Saudi and Iran. There will be a return of the ambassadors pretty soon because the embassies have been emptied of, uh, of their staff for a while now. Uh, so we can see that the United States is trying to at least achieve as much as it can before any change. And, uh, you know, obviously all the region right now is waiting for the arrival of uh, Emperor Biden um, in the, on the 15th of the month. And that uh, should uh, set the tone for what's going to come next. And to that point, there's a Responsible Statecraft article. Expert group says Biden should show political courage on Iran deal. Many are wondering why the president is letting politics stand in the way of a sound non-proliferation agreement. One would think that with his anticipated meeting in the region, that being able to come in and show that he can actually get something done 
would give him a lot more clout and leverage than letting this thing die on the vine as he seems to be wanting, he and uh, Tony Blinken, wanting to allow it to do. Yeah, I mean, it's very weird and strange because uh, also today the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Iran announced that Qatar will be hosting uh, uh, non-direct negotiations between Iran and the United States in regards to the nuclear deal. According to the Foreign Affairs Minister of Iran, this is because uh, all the other parties uh, have been satisfied, uh, uh, their demands have been satisfied with Iran, and the only thing that is left is actually uh, satisfying the United States, uh, and that is going to happen now in these negotiations uh, in Qatar. Uh, will you know? And and it seems that uh, at least for now, this is what we are being told. Uh, if this, maybe maybe they are trying to finalize uh, any deal before the arrival of Biden in the region. Or the other option is that they are just wasting time uh, to you know allow Biden to come and 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 finalize the military pact that he's trying to build between uh, the Zionist colony and the Gulf monarchies. You know, I tend to think that the the Biden administration never had any at- intention to um, get back in the JCPOA. That they're far too close with the uh, ex- that with the extremists in the because even in in, in in Israel, because even in Israel, there are people in power who want to see the JCOP, say JCPOA, um, uh, you know, the U.S. back in it, but that the um, the Bidens and the Blinkens of the world are in bed with the most extremist elements. And and to me, it seems like this. He just wants to drag it out as long as possible, because if it falls apart, then those extremist elements can say, aha, we have to go to war. And he doesn't want that. But he also has so much um, pressure on him from other Zionists that, he, you know, he's caught between a rock and a hard place. Anyway, your thoughts, Leith? Yeah, in a way it is, uh, you, you know, all the parts of the empire are pulling out of different directions currently. And uh, the central command of the empire, uh, you know, it is not in its interest to inflame all these war zones with Russia, with China, with with Iran, with the axis of resistance, with South America and Venezuela and so forth, all at the same time. They want to confront these uh, adversary adversaries, as they say, but... They can do it all at once. But at the same time, many of the vessels and components of the empire themselves cannot wait much. You know, the Israelis cannot wait more. Uh, the Saudis cannot wait more. The, the Taiwanese can't wait more. And so we see the pressures uh, of tactical maneuvers uh, disappearing, the, the tactical options in front of the empire disappearing very fast, which is uh, pushing it to... Uh, take these what what seems to be uh, irrational or radical actions. There's a piece in Common Dreams. It's time to free Gazans from the world's largest open air prison. And it's interesting to me how, uh, in particularly in terms of mainstream media, there's very very little attention paid to this issue. Yeah, I mean, the, it is right now. Um, what uh, almost uh, 18 years since uh, the blockade of Gaza started. Uh, this is one one of the longest uh, sieges, uh, naval sieges in, in human history, and uh, the, the situation is not getting better. It's just getting worse. 
And, you know, this is why the pressure is mounting on the resistance in Gaza to take action, because since the war last year, uh, we were supposed to see a lifting of uh, some of the siege, an easing of the uh, situation in for the population in Gaza in order to release some of the pressure, but that didn't happen. And neither did the, uh, you know, the decolonization of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, today, for instance, Israeli government announced that it's uh, uh, transferring the deeds of much of the uh, neighborhoods uh, across from Laqsa Mosque to, uh, you know, Zionist settlers, and which, of course, was, as we remember, even a hint to that last year started uh, the war. So we could, you know, again, we go back to the situation where the empire and its components do not have many uh, tactical options left in front of them, and all of them are going to only make it worse for them and uh, instigate more conflict in the region. You know, the interesting thing about this is Joe Biden goes around the world talking about democracies versus authoritarian uh, countries, etc. And this blockade started because the Palestinians voted Hamas into power. And that was their option. And after they were supposedly given a vote and they didn't choose the the the, the, the party that the U.S. and, um, and Israel uh, thought they should, they've been punished ever since. We got two minutes. Yes. I mean, democracy to the West is uh, only acceptable when it has outcomes that it likes. And of course, this is why there is no such thing as democracy. We know that the you know, in the West right now, we can see in the United States the demonstrations that are coming out today because of the multiple actions of the government, uh, including the Supreme Court, that are unrepresentative of the population. And so, uh, look, the Palestinian people have tried this path of democracy, and we saw where it, where it ended, as you mentioned, with the West denying the democratic uh, outcome of the election and uh, you know, besieging the people of Gaza and punishing them for uh, making their, you know, taking a, such a democratic choice. And we are here today uh, still waiting for another election because since then there hasn't been an election and uh, the Palestinians haven't been allowed to have an election because no matter what, uh, you know, it the choices that the Palestinians will make will not, uh, you know, fit the American agenda. We've been talking with Latham Maroof. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko has admitted that the Minsk Accord was a ruse meant to distract Russia while the U.S. built Ukrainian military capability for an eventual war with Russia. Joining us to discuss this issue, we have Dr. David Walalu. He's an author and international security analyst. Dr. Walalu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Pleasure to be with you, Garland. 
Petro Poroshenko has admitted that the 2015 ceasefire in Donbass, which he negotiated with Russia, France and Germany as president of Ukraine, was merely a distraction intended to buy time for Kiev to rebuild its military. He made the comments in interviews with several news outlets this week, including Germany's Deutsche Welle television and the Ukrainian branch of the U.S. state-run Radio Free Europe. Poroshenko also defended his record as president between 2014 and 2019. Hmm. If I were Russia, I would be reticent to trust these people for a new version of the Minsk Accord. Just throwing that out there. Your thoughts, Dr. Walalu? Well, it's a, it's a straightforward outcome. The Russians are not going to do that because, of course, the element of trust. But, of course, this one highlights that this conflict, what's going on right now, it's not new. This has been in the works for the last eight years. The question that now, at least in the West, with some prevailing heads, we need to be asking is, did Russia defeat the rest of the world? Because that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, this declaration or the uh, statements by Poroshenko uh, highlights, you know, you can trust uh, the, the Ukrainians or the West for that matter. So I do not believe in my opinion, I do not believe the Russians will make the same mistake again by, by agreeing to some sort of uh, uh, deal uh, like what happened with the, Manas, uh, with, with the Minsk uh, agreement. I, I just don't see them doing this. You know, uh, Dr. Walalu, looking at the other side of the table in terms of, mm-hmm. France, in, in terms of France and Germany, one has to wonder, at, for example, at the G7 meeting, are they sitting there in the closed room saying to the United States, wait a minute, wait a minute, you've got my people suffering exorbitant inflation, can't get access to, to, to fuel. We got people in Hungary in the forest looking for sticks. And this was a lie from the beginning. I, I would think they would be Olaf Schultz and uh, Macron. Macron would be livid. And saying this really is the, is a replay of the JCPOA. You can't trust the United States signature. And Poroshenko lured us into a conflict the likes of which can end the world. Well, you're absolutely correct, Wilmer. I mean, this is the reality that the, well, first of all, Western politicians do not want to admit to it. And second, the average citizen in the West that's why he or she is oblivious to what's going on, because they don't understand what is at the core of what this challenges or conflict is all about. I mean, you are noticing this right now behind closed doors within NATO. You're looking at the Hawks uh, camp in NATO, like, for example, Britain, like uh, Poland, uh, some other Eastern European countries. They're saying and arguing, no, 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 no. Keep Russia as a pariah state. Then you have the other camps within NATO, like France, for example, saying, listen, guys, at the end of this, when the dust settles, Russia will always be there. The geography people get it. You know, and this is why the G7, the upcoming meeting that's going to start tomorrow for, for, for NATO, it's nothing but a bravado. I mean, I, I read the report about the G7 declaration regarding the $600 billion that they want to invest. Really? Couldn't you even fix the high prices of oil, energy, and the commodities, and you are going to pull up $600 billion? Where the money is going to come from? 
It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So this is why they are lost in a maelstrom of just uh, no direction, no vision whatsoever. And this is why I do believe, as a, as a geopolitical analyst, I would be asking myself, and I am asking myself, did Russia defeat the rest of the world? And what it means is that we are, uh, the multipolar system is already upon us. It's the reality of it. When you look at, you know, they, I still remember um, President Biden going to Poland saying, you know, for God's sake, this mm-hmm. man, whatever he said, can't stay in office or whatever. It appears that if you look at Bulgaria, I believe it's Latvia uh-huh. or Slovakia now, um, their governments are falling apart. Uh, Boris Johnson has, you know, one foot in the grave and the other on the patch of ice, uh, politically speaking. We've got um, certainly Olaf Schultz. I think the numbers for his government are down to 30 percent, and I don't see how he can make it through 20 2022, it appears that the coalition um, that the United States kind of put together, if we want to call the vassal states a coalition, is unraveling from the inside out in that the people are not happy with the course that their leadership has chosen for them without their, you know, what I mean, they're saying, my people are willing to suffer to smite Russia, but they never asked the people themselves, actually, if they were willing to do that, Dr. Wallalo. Well, that, that, that's correct. I mean, you look at it, Ghana, uh, in the sense of that the economic crisis that is going on right now is going to erupt sooner or later. It's going to erupt into some sort of revolutions that's going to be taking place. Let's not uh, let's not pretend. Let's not sugarcoat it. You know, people needs to understand, or the governments, for that matter, needs to understand that people can only take so much. We're going to be seeing that here in our own country. We're going to see it in Europe soon. You're going to see it in Canada. You're going to see it in Australia. Why? It's because they defy logic as to how governments are going to spend money, pumping money into Ukraine while the citizens are suffering. And you're telling the citizens, well, you're going to have to suck it up for the sake of Ukraine. Who the heck is going to buy that? I won't. As an American, I'm going to be concerned about my country here my fellow citizens here, and the cost of living that is going up beyond what people can afford. I mean, we got to be realistic as to where we're going to get this money from. It just defies logic. And then it pains me to say this, that, you know, we got no leaders anymore. <laughs> that just, uh, it, it's sad. It's so sad. And uh, if I use history, if using history as my guide, the last time the world suffered, from the crisis of rising food, we all know what happened. The outbreak of the Arab Spring, which led to what? The overthrow of four presidents. You know, I just can see uh, history repeating itself sooner than later. You posited early in the conversation, did Russia defeat the rest of the world? Could you elaborate on that as well as you're talking about the G7 being bravado, could you speak to what the, what I'm anticipating to be the these statements of unity, but behind the scenes, the the as you've just been and Garland has been uh, 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 hitting on, this thing is falling apart. Well, it is Walmart, and this is why your listeners need to really they are smart enough to know what Washington is saying versus what it is are. Two opposite ends, you know. The, I, the reason why, as I said, as an analyst, I will be asking myself the question, 
did Russia defeat the rest of the world? And I'm coming to the answers is yes. The reason being because, and I'm not surprised at all this, because I wrote about it in a book before. And I argued even back then that after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, many in the West and Europe, you know, they claimed that the Cold War ended and that the capitalist system has triumphed. But for much of the post-Cold War era, that assumption among either Washington elites or the, the ineffective leaders in Europe <laughs> was that Russia no longer had the power it once did. That thinking among Washington elites persists even today. It persists in Europe as well. However, the thinking in the West that Russia will be unable to reemerge has proven ill-conceived. And this is why I am asking myself that question. Did Russia defeat the rest of the world? And the thing about it is the um, uh, we've now got some Ukrainian officials basically saying, in, you know, in light of uh, a number of um, uh, people in Europe and in the U.S. starting to say, look, we need a deal here. We need some level of diplomacy. And now there are some Ukrainian officials saying, no way, there will be no Minsk three, There will be no deal. And here's the question. Looking into next winter, can Europe forget surviving economically? Can they even maintain a civil society if people don't have food and, as is predicted, may not have electricity? If you have entire countries where everything's freezing and breaking, basically, can you even maintain a civil society even more anymore? I, I, don't, I don't see that happening, uh, Garland. There is no way, given that Europe already has only, and I'll share this with you, has only 57% in its storage of gas. That's about it. You know how much it needs? It needs about 80%. So this is why the German economic minister is already warning that some industries in Germany will be shutting down. And this is why you take an example of, like, for example, BMW. BMW went ahead and opened the plant in China at $2.2 billion in China. As a matter of fact, BMW's third uh, uh, vehicle manufacturer or car manufacturers in China. So people's not going to be tolerating once they start going hungry. It's just human nature. And this is what I'm saying. You will think they will learn from the lessons of history. But obviously, like when I saw the photo yesterday of the, the, the G7 leaders, whatever, it's pathetic. It is pathetic when people are suffering and they are agreeing on $600 billion for what? That's the, you know, you, we will see uh, uh, violence. We will see social unrest. We will see disruptions in Europe. And I won't be surprised even here for us in America and our neighbor to the north. The headline says, no people among Ukrainian officials will allow the existence of Minsk three. Mm-hmm. Well, if, mm-hmm. if, we're, if we're to believe the reports that Russian missiles are now hitting Kiev and Kharkiv, I don't know that there's going to be anything to negotiate in, in another few weeks. Because <laughs> uh, it, 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 it sounds as though that they, the, the Ukrainians have played this hand out so far that now they have really pushed Russia to the point of we got to take the whole damn thing now because you've left me no choice. 
Well, especially after attacking the uh, the uh, uh, oil uh, uh, plant uh, on the Russian oil rig, border. right? Yeah, oil rig. That is, yeah. So it gives them, it gives Russia now no option but to just move forward. But the point is, is that they cannot trust, and they will not. They Russians will not trust Ukraine or the West for that matter, and Ukraine cannot. And will not be able to make a decision on its own without the approval of the United States. That's the bottom line to it. And uh, so just people need to get it into their head that Ukraine cannot do squat on its own. It's been told what to do. And for the, for the West, let just like you, like I already read it in the report that will be released tomorrow about NATO. Let's keep supporting Ukraine militarily. That's what the report is going to be saying, which to me, it's, it's confirmed what we talked about a month and a half or two months ago, that the fight will go on in Ukraine till the last Ukrainian. <laughs> that's, that's how. So Russia is not going to mess around with it. Russia is going to, if the opportunity presents itself, and as well take it over and be done with. And I do think that eventually what you're going to see in Ukraine, since there is no off-ramp per se, is collapse. Some type of a coup, some type of a political or military collapse. Um, I think that's what that's the ultimate uh, destiny, unfortunately, for the Ukrainian government. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Some economists are arguing that stagflation has already hit the U.S. and recession is likely not far behind. Also, the anti-inflation moves by the U.S. and the Eurozone, will they make matters worse? Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. The U.S. may or may not see a recession in the next year or two, top economists contend. But one thing is certain, stagflation is real and it's here in the U.S. That's what Mohammed El Aryan, economist and president of Queens College at Cambridge University, said recently in an interview. The baseline is stagflation, what we are experiencing now, inflation high, growth slowing down, he said. The balance of risk has shifted significantly in favor of recession. Dr. Tawheed, your thoughts? Well, I, I think that uh, economists, this economist and maybe other economists are being much, much too conservative. Perhaps they're not wanting to declare a recession in order not to, not to further scare the public uh, but the idea that, uh, yeah, the, the risk of recession has risen, I think, uh, but we were always talking about, uh, economists were, uh, the risk of recession in a year or two. Uh, if it's risen, then that risk is actually going to be closer than a year or two. And so, yes, we are certainly in stagflation already. We have uh, inflation. Now, uh, unemployment uh, hasn't started to rise yet as an indication of, of um, uh, that uh, 1970-style stagflation. But as we've discussed before, the fact that the unemployment rate is down in the threes, mid-threes, 
it's not really an indication of how many people are working and earning a living uh, because it includes persons who are just making a couple of hours uh, of work per, per week doing gig work. And so the, inflate, the, the unemployment rate is actually much higher uh, than than uh, than it was uh, than it than it's being indicated, and I think we're already into high unemployment and high inflation. Uh, what that means in terms of a turn down in the gross domestic product, I think we, we will we will see that uh, much further, much closer than a year from now. One of the elements of stagflation that I always understood was demand, and one of the one of the things that we've been talking about or economists have been talking about in this current uh, circumstance is demand. And I, I think the technical term for stagflation is stagnant demand, whereas here it's not so much that the demand is stagnant, stagnant it's that the supply is non-existent. Th- does that matter in this analysis? Well, yes, it, it matters. We've been we've been talking about the the lack deficiency in supply as being the reason for the inflation. We've been talking about that since uh, well uh, for for quite a while. And so, while economists tend to focus all of their attention on demand, certainly the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, the actions that it's able to take, increasing interest rates or decreasing interest rates. Are, are are geared towards affecting demand, either bringing down demand if you have uh, inflation, or increasing demand if you have uh, you know stagnation. But but that's a tool that doesn't work when the problem is a supply problem, and it's very obvious that it's it's a supply problem. If it wasn't obvious before the pandemic, it was obvious that the supply chain crisis and uh, pandemic. Uh, closures and all that created a problem in supply, which caused an inflation. Uh, the Federal Reserve can't do anything about that. That that's that's in the in the hands of the of the Treasury, of the federal government in terms of spending. But spending on supply increase, not spending on on increasing demand. We've been talking that, that about that for a while, and economists being so demand driven are well behind the curve on that. Do you think, and I've heard people say this, that there will be a reversal, that the Fed is going to do this and they're going to start, you know, uh, increasing the, the, um, I- increasing the uh, interest rates and when the things really start to fall apart, that they're going to start backtracking or do you think they're just going to keep doing it? No, well, I think, I think when things begin to fall apart, they'll start backtracking. But it'll be it'll be too late. I mean, they should have started. They would have started. It, it would have been good if they had started backtracking, let's say, six months earlier before that time shows. So once the crisis is here, when they start backtracking, uh, it's really too late to, to, to do anything about the uh, still uh, increased inflation that we will have and then the, the recession that will, they will drive us into. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a very blunt tool. And it takes time. It, it, it takes no time for the Federal Reserve to increase or decrease interest rates, but it takes time for that effect to have uh, the, the, the increased interest rates to have an effect on, on inflation, particularly if the inflation is supply driven. And so uh, the, the right now, uh, in most cases, the Federal Reserve Bank with, with interest rates can do great harm and can do almost no good. Vijay Prashad has a piece entitled The Architecture of Our Future. 
And in this piece, he writes, the World Bank reports that food and fuel prices will remain at very high levels until at least the end of 2024. As wheat and oil seed prices have escalated, reports are coming in from across the globe, including the wealthy countries, that working class families have started to skip meals. 2024, I don't see not only the U.S. economy, I don't see the world economy waiting for 2024 for for solutions to be provided. Well, Prasad is is painting a very realistic and pessimistic a uh, picture of of what's coming if the uh, the 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 developing countries and poor countries continue on with their relationships with what's called the global north, you know, the U.S. and Europe. Uh, if they were to continue those relationships and let's say try to get some relief from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, or the World Bank, they will in fact uh, go grow more deeply into death and despair. Um, but 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 that's not what's happening now. I think the uh, the call for the U.S. to uh, for countries to participate in sanctions against Russia, and the majority of the country of the countries and 75% of the world's population not going along with those sanctions, even though the U.S. has uh, the ability to punish them if they don't. Uh, these most of the countries of the world and and 75% of the people are not going along with the sanctions because. They are looking at other opportunities, opportunities that are being uh, placed before them by uh, the, uh, the, the growing relationship between Russia and China and uh, other countries uh, around the world like Brazil, South Africa, and India that are going on a, with the so-called BRICS, right, that are going on a different path and offering uh, a way out for these countries who um, are, are going against, if you will, the U.S., and uh, the European interests. And so, no, they're, they're, they're not going to wait. They, it, it's indicated that they have not waited, that they've decided that their fate is better served by a relationship with, with uh, other parts of the world as opposed to the West. Let me ask you this. Um, it, it, we're hearing that, you know, there's a new expanded BRICS um, coming, and there's even a discussion in that group of um, a new currency, a new reserve currency that they're going to use bas- based on a basket of commodities, stuff like that. The obvious question for me would be, how can I buy some of that currency? But since it's not, but since it's not there, and I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking that. But 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 since that that's my, in my mind, I think to myself, there are a lot of people right now thinking, man, if they open Russia back up, I want to buy some of that Gazprom stock or whatever. If this happens, I want to open. There are a whole lot of people looking eastward, saying. I want an opportunity to invest because the West seems to be going bad and the sun looks like it's going to be shining on the East. What are your thoughts? Well, if you're a major investor and you are uh, looking for opportunities around the world, regardless of, of national interests or, or so forth, then I, I think you, you probably uh, want to look to the East, to the Eurasian uh, alliance that's building as the place where the, the greater growth will occur going forward. Uh, we have in that, in that alliance, uh, you know, well-developed economies like China and, and Russia. Uh, we have emerging economies uh, like, like India and South Africa and Brazil. And then we have other economies uh, that are, are, are developing that will be part of that, 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 that organization. And there's, there's tremendous 
opportunity for growth there. So if you're an investor uh, and you, you look at a, a Western stock versus an Eastern stock, and the Eastern stock is going to give you greater uh, returns, then you're going to you're going to invest in in the eastern stock. The question is, with this new currency, how do you do that? Because if it's a currency that's going to be uh, evaluated based on the the total uh, productive capacities of all of the members of the of the uh, foreign exchange, uh, as opposed to being um, uh, contrasted to the dollar, like Western stocks are. And so there's this, there's an interesting structure. To the stock that's to the uh, the, to the uh, currency that's being proposed, and that it's it won't be tied to the the strength of the uh, Chinese currency, the yuan, or the Russian ruble, or any other currency. It's going to be tied to the to to the strength of all of the currencies and all of the productive capabilities of of the countries that are part of that. That is a very different uh, organization for currency value than, than we currently have with, uh, which, which is valued according to its relationship to the dollar. And to that point, and VJ goes on in his article talking about ghastly is the way of inflation, but inflation is merely the symptom of a deeper problem and is not the cause. He talks about the capitalist economic theory is off. Well, you, you're, you're, in, inflation uh, is is uh, something that uh, you know we've been talking about as as you know detrimental to bankers, and so the Federal Reserve uh, being set up as the bankers' bank is is intended to target inflation, but but when it targets inflation, it always causes a slowdown in the economy. In fact, that's that's the point. Which means that uh, that the interests of bankers and the wealthy are are being uh, addressed, and and the poor and the working class is being sacrificed. So inflation, in that sense, becomes a symptom of of the sacrifice uh, of the poor that the that the Fed Fed tries to address, but in the process causes uh, despair for 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 the poor. So it is it is that relationship that structure. That causes this this antagonism uh, between uh, well, it's part of the symptoms of the antagonism between the working class and the wealthy, and and it 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 in many instances uh, there's certainly a, a point of view that would argue that inflation is something that when it comes along uh, causes not only a decrease in in the current opportunity for the rich, but also depresses wages and depresses um, the, the the power of the working class, so that when that power is broken, the rich can then uh, begin to revive and and make even greater profits. And so, for the rich, inflation is a temporary thing. For the poor, it may be life threatening. We've been talking with Dr. Linwood Tawhid. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. 
The U.S.-funded, trained, and equipped Nazi movement in Ukraine has built a state within a state that makes the border nation ungovernable. Also, we look at the ideology behind the worship of Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dan Lazar. Dan's an investigative journalist and author. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. RT article starts off with, despite the surrender of the Azov regiment at the Azovstal Iron and Steel Works during the fighting in Mariupol last month, the legend of this unit has turned out to be enduring. The Ukrainian command has already announced that new Azov special operations forces will be created in Kharkov and Kiev. Dan, your thoughts? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, the Azov battalion started off fairly small and modestly in the uh, in mid-2014, um, uh, it grew steadily, but the, um, the eruption of war essentially creates ideal conditions uh, for the, um, uh, that uh, organization. Um, and uh, according to its founder, uh, its forces have multiplied tens of thousands of times over. So the Azov Battalion now is a very sizable chunk of the uh, entire Ukrainian defense establishment. And um, it is a powerful political force in that country as well. Uh, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I want to, I want to be very careful here. I'm not saying that Zelensky himself is a Nazi, uh, but I am saying that he, that, that Nazi, neo-Nazi elements are a major force in his government and one to which he has no choice but to be, extremely deferential. So Azov is big, it's getting bigger, uh, wartime conditions are ideal for its growth, and it, 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 it counts for a great deal politically as well when it comes to Ukrainian affairs. Daniel, can you speak to how the United States has used not only Azov in the right sector and other types of uh, of organizations within Ukraine, but how the United States has used them and how this kind of fits into the United States playbook of funding organizations such as these, training organizations such as these, sometimes through militarism, sometimes through journalism, but whatever they feel the proper fit is, and how they use them to, to foment unrest in what are otherwise formerly uh, some stable stable countries? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing one thing about about America is that its 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 empire is highly leveraged. I mean, that means like you know you know the um, America doesn't occupy colonies the way France and 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 Britain once did. It prefers to send a few military advisors and financial advisors and to use local local governments to in order to you know to impose its policies. So, you know, a few advisors, a few technical experts, and the U.S. is able to, to, to use those instruments to essentially establish pretty comprehensive control. But there's a downside to that. And one downside is that these countries that it, it colonizes or takes control of often tend to be very weak and ephemeral and ruled by disreputable people often of a far-right uh, character. So that was the case in Vietnam, for example. I mean, in South Vietnam, the U.S. found itself beholden to, a, to an increasingly 
unstable, weak, you know, politically, uh, you know, disreputable governments. Um, the same thing happened in Syria, where the where the U.S. found itself, you know, employing various Al Qaeda spinoffs, um, people it wouldn't normally associate with in under the usual circumstances. And in the Ukraine, you have a really a seriously broken state, the most corrupt state in Europe, and one in which you know that the dominant force are these are the neo-Nazis of the Azov battalions, the Svoboda Party, the right sector, etc., who the US, due to a similar process, has found itself in growing partnership with. Now, I mean, I mean, I mean, Joe Biden is not a Nazi. I don't think he likes Nazis. I don't think he includes any 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 Nazis among his close friends. But nonetheless, Joe Biden finds himself working with Nazis in the Ukraine, and this happens time and again. Uh, and and the U.S. and it always it always in the end fails because these local operators are just too benighted, too weak, too fragmented to do the job for the U.S. And the U.S. always winds up losing these wars. You know, uh, I'd like to ask you this, Dan. How do you think, I think this particularly, this particular issue is going to be a problem for the U.S. in the long term because the West has for so long, you know, basically, you know, argued that the ideology of Nazism was, uh, you know, apparent, that it was horrible, it was unthinkable. And now that the, you know, the ultimate um, contradiction here to argue all of this time and now to literally support Nazis, it's going to be very difficult to come back from that edge. Well, yeah, but you know, this, 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 this collaboration with the Nazis goes right back to the Nazis. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, the U.S., um, the U.S. was pretty was of mixed opinions about Hitler during his rise to power. Uh, during the final months of World War II, the CIA, at that time it was the OSS, uh, engaged in certain kinds of surreptitious negotiations with uh, Nazi elements whose goal was to surrender to the West and there, thereby enlist the West in, a, uh, in an anti-Soviet crusade. But Stalin found out about, about it beforehand and you know, sort of put the kibosh on it. But as soon as the war was over, the U.S., you know, made great haste in allying itself with nominal ex-Nazis and, you know, and, and, and assembling a government for, the, uh, for, for West Germany and a, an intelligence op- apparatus, etc. So the U.S. has never shown any compunction about working with, with Nazis or so-called ex-Nazis, etc. Uh, but I agree that this, this process has reached an extreme in the Ukraine where we have a government which is heavily influenced, if not dominated, by neo-Nazis. And the U.S. is, you know, is, is, is in deep partnership with this government and is doing its best to whitewash them of their, you know, of their so-called Nazi ties. You know, you mentioned early in the conversation that this faction, the Azov faction within the government was small, and that as the war has developed, they have grown. And that kind of fits their ideology uh, articulated by Donstov, that the, the he talks about the, the legend of the last battle and the fascinating image of the catastrophe that's going to bring something new, which is very similar to a lot of apocalyptic thinking. You even find it in Scripture that uh, there's going to be the apocalypse, some say before the rapture, some say after the rapture, 
this whole period of tribulation. So it all just kind of fits in to almost to like a self-fulfilling narrative. You got to have the war in order for us to become pure. So let's go out here and start the war. Yeah, I mean, I mean, love of war is central to uh, to fascist ideology. Uh, love of violence. Somehow, violence is a is a form of purification. Uh, people are reborn in the battlefield. You know, in the battlefield, they they learn brotherhood. They fling you know, they and they carry those fighting qualities. You know, over into peacetime society. Uh, you know, so this is this is the story in Germany in, 19, in the nineteen twenties. In the Ukraine, the history of Ukrainian nationalism is really fascinating. Uh, it goes back to the uh, the late 16th century when Poland, which was ruled by you know by by large landlords, uh, took over the uh, the the uh, the the Western Ukraine, uh, ground it down, you know, squeezed out every last ounce of profit. Uh, by essentially, you know, ensurfing Ukrainians on their large estates. And the, uh, the Ukrainians uh, rose in revolt in 1648 under a Cossack leader named Bogdan uh, Kamilnitsky. Sorry for the history, but this is really relevant. Um, and anyway, Kamilnitsky fought a war against the Polish landlords and their estate managers who tended to be Jewish. So he killed thousands of Poles and perhaps as many as 20,000 Jews in the mid-17th century. If you fast forward to the mid-20th century, um, you find the same forces, essentially, uh, Ukrainian nationalists engaged in a war of extermination against Polish peasants and Jews in the same portion of the Ukraine. The the, uh, the the Western Ukraine, um, and so you know, so this this was the war that was led by followers of Stepan Bandera, who was now an official hero of the Ukraine. His birth is January first birthday is a national holiday, features torchlight processions in favor of a genocidal exterminationist, you know, and this is the society that America is allied with. Dan, and it seems it seems that the U.S. I mean, actually intentionally fed the ideology. You see that it, the as an example, the Azov Battalion, the most famous of many various fascist battalions, but the Azov Battalion didn't become part officially part of the Ukrainian military until after the U.S. overthrew the government and pretty much was running the country as a colony. The the people in the the far-right nationalists had little power in the government until the U.S. took over. This is the story throughout Eastern Europe. I mean, throughout Eastern Europe, since the 1990s, with the, with the advance of NATO, the U.S. has encouraged the most extreme nationalist elements, the ones who are most fiercely anti-Russian, but are also most right-wing. I mean, Poland has an has a arch-conservative Catholic government. Under the uh, under the law and justice uh, uh, party, abortion is outlawed. You know, I mean, I mean human uh, gay rights are on the defensive. Uh, there's growing anti-Semitism, etc. Uh, so, th- so the U.S. has, you know, consciously or unconsciously uh, encouraged these developments, and 
We see them in their most extreme form in the Ukraine, where we have you know the ultra right, which is anti-gypsy, anti-gay, anti-Semitic, anti-Polish, anti-Russian, can count on the the unstinting support of Washington. Anti-African, as the way that many of the, the students were, were taught. So does this does this boil down to? the standard operating procedure of the United States that the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Yeah, it does. I mean, wherever the U.S. goes, it somehow finds itself, you know, teaming up with the most retrograde elements. You know, whether they're South Vietnamese militarists or they're, you know, or they're, they're jihadists, the Al-Qaeda jihadists in, uh, in Syria. Uh, you know, it just doesn't seem to, or I, you know, I might, I might, might point out, you know, far right wing Zionists in Israel. I mean, I, I know it, it seems that the U.S. has this, 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 this incredible nose for sniffing these elements out, and it winds up in alliance with them. Uh, it just happens time and again. Well, at some point, Dan, you have to look at it and say there is an. A, there is an ideological alignment there that many may not want to admit. And of course, those types of people are the most corrupt, you know, oftentimes and the easiest to um, to fund if you want to cause chaos and disrupt a society. Hey, Garland, well, the alignment is slavery because the guy, Don Stop, the guy that created a lot of this ideology, he 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 equated the concept of nation and race. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of master and slave races and Russians were the race of slaves and they were trying to enslave Ukrainians. Well, it's that's all clear now. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I mean, I mean, slavery is a, is a major part of this ideology or, or, or the desire to enslave, I should say. And uh, and um, and 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 the and the United States is, you know, is. It's structurally has been heading into the to the right for for decades and uh, and and seeks its allies among similar political elements. We've been talking with Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 